We're reading through chapter 14, verse 5. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world, in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints." Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound has healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless." 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that you speak to us through it and ask that you would open our eyes this morning to see wonderful things in this difficult portion of your scriptures. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The other night, Cassie was at Bible study, and on those evenings, I take the opportunity to catch up on my man movies. And one uh, such movie is A River Runs Through It. It's a story of two brothers, sons of a Presbyterian minister in Missoula, Montana. Norman, the older brother, is by all intents and purposes relatively successful. He's the only of the two brothers to attend college. He goes back to Missoula, Montana for a short season and then receives a staff position at a college as a professor in Chicago. But his younger brother, Paul, is, a, is different. He's more complicated. Paul drinks too much. He drinks too often. Paul has seen his fair share of fights in the casinos and bars And he's gambled all of his money away, so much that he's in debt to loan sharks. But the one thing that these brothers have in common is their affection for fly fishing. It says that they didn't know where their instruction in religion ended and their instruction in fly fishing began. Those two things were so weaved together by their Presbyterian father. And one day when Norm was on, uh, at home after college. The brothers went fly fishing with their dad. And Norman and the Reverend McLean were walking down the path to his brother Paul on the banks of the Big Blackfoot River. They could tell that Paul was eyeing a really large trout in a small pool in the river. And so instead of going to interrupt him, they stopped and they observed They knew that he was the best fisherman in the family. So they wanted to see how was he going to tackle this opportunity. Paul, with grace and intentionality, cast the line just above the trout, followed it down the river, and the the trout took the bait. He hooked the trout, and in his excitement, he went further into the river and got swept up into the river. And he was flowing downstream, holding his rod in one hand, holding onto his hat in another, trying to reel in this fish. And he managed with a mixture of strength and beauty to get to shore with his rod, with his hat, and reel in the fish. It was an extravagant rainbow trout, the best these three men had ever seen in Montana. And Norm reflects on the event in this way. He said, at that moment, I knew surely and clearly that I was witnessing perfection. My brother stood before us, not on the banks of the big Blackfoot River, but suspended above the earth, free from all its laws like a work of art. And I knew just as surely just as clearly that life is not a work of art and that the moment could not last.
Have you ever felt that feeling? That the moment could not last. That life is certainly not a work of art. Norm got a glimpse into glory, but he had to come back down to reality. He had to acknowledge the tension of beauty and brokenness in his brother and in the world around him. And friends, we live in that tension. The tension between beauty and brokenness. It's the result of Jesus' victory over the dragon. We saw that last week in chapter 12. Though the dragon has been defeated, he remains active. We live in the space between the defeat of evil and the final destruction of evil. That's the space and the time that we inhabit. And friends, it's not easy. It's not easy to live in that, temp- in that tension because there's a cosmic conflict going on. A cosmic conflict between good and evil, between the church and between the evil one. It's going on in the world and it's going on inside all of us. And this conflict plays out throughout human history. It's not just a thing of the past. And it's certainly not just a thing of the future. It's right now in all of our lives. And while the dragon's power is limited, he's still operative. He's still at work attempting to deceive. And so the call of Revelation 13 is found at the end of verse 10. It says, here is a call for the, for the endurance and faith of the saints. So Revelation 13 is calling us, calling all Christians to endure the cosmic conflict with faith. But what does God show you in Revelation 13 and 14 to empower your faith in the midst of this conflict? How does he train your hands for war? How does he enable you to make war against the cosmic evil forces of the dragon? He shows us three things. We're going to see that he shows us the face of evil. Then he shows us the tactics of evil. And lastly, he shows us the conquest of evil. So first, he shows you the face of evil. John sees here a sort of satanic trinity. After the dragon is thrown down and is conquered, he stands on the sand of the sea in chapter 12, verse 18, and two beasts rise up, one from the sea and one from the land. And remember our our important interpretive principle that symbols in Revelation are intended to be interpreted symbolically. And so these beasts are symbols for something else. The first beast is a symbol for the counterfeit to Jesus. And the second beast symbolizes the counterfeit to the church and to the spirit. So the first beast is spoken of in almost identical terms as the lamb who was slain. It says he received a mortal wound and his mortal wound has been healed And the whole earth marvels as they follow the beast. So he appears to be slain and rises again like the lamb. In verses 16 and 17, his followers have his name written on their foreheads like God's people are sealed by God. 
And then he receives a throne and authority from the dragon. He's given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation in verses 2 and 7. And then he receives worldwide worship, people proclaiming who is like the beast and who can fight against it. But what's important to note about this beast is that his goal is always to claim your allegiance. It's always to get you to compromise with evil. He wants you to bow the knee to him and not to God. But friends, this beast is a counterfeit. He mimics, but he doesn't match the supremacy of the lamb. In fact, it says that the beast was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. He was allowed to make war on the saints. And remember that 42 months, that three and a half years is symbolic of the church age between the first advent and second advent of Jesus. God, in the eternal counsel of his own wisdom, set a particular time period that the beast is allowed to exercise authority. The ultimate authority is God himself. But the first beast functions as a counterfeit to Jesus, always begging for your worship, demanding your allegiance. And then the second beast is a counterfeit to the church and to the spirit. The work of the church and the spirit is always to point the nations to worship the lamb who was slain. That's our role. But here we see the second beast's role in world history is to manipulate the world, to worship the first beast, and then by extension, worship the dragon. He performs great signs like the prophet Moses performed when God brought his people out of Egypt. He makes fire come down from heaven like the great prophet Elijah when in, in front of the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. It says that he marks those who worship the beast with the name of the beast, similar to us being sealed on our foreheads by God. But friends, he's a counterfeit. He's always encouraging you to worship the beast, to shift your allegiance away from God and to offer it to the beast. Now, a popular interpretation is to try to identify these beasts with a particular person or a particular persons. But friends, it's unlikely that John would have been speaking about a single individual or even a single institution. Rather, these beasts represent evil forces that are constantly being manifested throughout world history. These are primeval forces of wickedness at work in the world. They don't represent one particular person, but they represent all attempts, all attempts to get you to compromise with evil and to associate with wickedness. So throughout the church's age, these beasts have manifested themselves in ideologies and institutions and authorities and whole societies and cultures that attempt to claim your allegiance away from the one true God and the lamb who was slain. And the point's not that you would look at all authorities suspiciously, but that you would discern that there is an evil power 
that there is a dangerous reality behind the realities that we see. And all works to oppose God and his church have this evil power, this evil reality enforcing it. And so be wary. Be wary of institutions. Be wary of individuals who set themselves up as a counterfeit, as the savior of the world, demanding your allegiance. Recognize the face of evil when it asks you to compromise and endure in faithfulness. And God empowers you to do that. He shows you the face of evil. And then secondly, he shows you the tactics of evil. The evil one utilizes particular methods to, to get you to compromise. And it's not rocket science. The first is political persecution. It says that the first beast spoke blasphemies against God and against his church. He makes war against God's people and he conquers them and he rules over every tribe and people and language and nation. And then the second beast causes those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Friend, these, friends, these are, these are oppressive political actions against the church, against God's people. And for John and for the early church, political persecution came at the hands of the Roman Empire. But political persecution wasn't limited to the first century. It wasn't just the first century church that was abused. It's been the method that's been utilized for evil for thousands of years, attempting to squelch the advance of the gospel. So the first tactic is political persecution. The second tactic is religious persuasion. The second beast in particular is a highly religious figure in this chapter. He performs signs and miracles. And by them he deceives those who dwell on earth. By his persuasive religious demeanor, he gives credibility to the first beast. He makes the claims of the first beast seem reasonable so that you feel justified when you compromise with, with wickedness and evil. And then the last tactic is economic pressure. It says that the second beast causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. The beast utilizes economic pressures on God's people, on the church, always attempting to keep the church under its thumb. So the beast marks his people out, sets them apart. There have been hundreds of attempts to identify this mark of the beast. 666, is it a microchip? Is it an individual world leader in history? Is it a present world leader? They say between the years of 1560 and 1830, over 100 names were associated with this number. We are constantly trying to figure it out. But friends, these attempts misunderstand the symbolic nature of numbers in Revelation. 
The number 666 should not be identified with an individual, but it's symbolic. It's symbolic of the wickedness of the satanic trinity. And so the beasts use it symbolically to identify their followers, those who submit and worship the beast. And all who are not sealed with their number, but who have been sealed by God, receive these evil tactics of political persecution, religious persuasion, and economic pressure. And so friends, it's important that we stay observant. It's important that we observe the broader political, religious, and economic landscape. It's important that we discern whether or not institutions and individuals have compromised, asking the question, is this faithfulness to God? And the author says that this calls for wisdom. Wisdom requires that we stay attentive to the tactics of evil in order for us to endure the cosmic conflict. And so God empowers you by showing you the face of evil, and then he shows you the tactics of evil. And then lastly, he shows you the final conquest of evil. Look with me at chapter 14. John says, then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, as we've heard in previous weeks, this 144,000 are all Christians throughout the ages, those who have been sealed by God. They're not a a special sect of Christianity, but they are those who have remained faithful to God, who have been redeemed from the earth, and they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. But here, the church is seen in a new light. This 144,000, it says in verse 4 that it, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Friends, this certainly means that these are those who have not compromised with evil. These are those who have not believed the lie. These are those who have not submitted to the counterfeit, but they have remained faithful to the truth. They've remained faithful to acknowledging that it was the lamb who was slain who conquers evil. They're not submitting to the counterfeit. In their mouth, no lie was found. But this is also drawing on a passage from Deuteronomy 23 where soldiers, before they went off to war, were to keep themselves ritually pure. That's what it means when it says they have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. And in this way, soldiers would consecrate themselves. They would separate themselves to God for his service in the midst of a holy war just before they went off in battle. And friends, 
the people of God are pictured here as those who have been conquered by the beast who then join the lamb to conquer wickedness, to wage war against evil. That's our calling. Our calling is to remain faithful to the truth and so conquer wickedness. If we must follow Jesus in his death, so be it. We will own that because we're following the lamb who was slain and we will conquer evil. If you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, there's this really dramatic scene where Aragorn and the king of Rohan are with a few other soldiers in the last protected room in the fortified city. And the king and Aragorn look at each other and say, this is our last ride. And so they jump on their horses and they ride out of the city into the armies of Mordor. And they're riding into certain death. They know what awaits them on the other side. It's death. But then the sun rises and they see up on the mountain Gandalf the White and he's riding his horse and behind him is a crowd of horses, the Rohirrim, the riders of Rohan and they ride down the mountain and they wage war against the armies of Mordor and they slay them. And friends, that's what John sees here. He sees the lamb who was slain coming with his army to make war and to gain victory. It is these who have not defiled themselves. It is these who have maintained the truth. It's these who had no lie in their mouths. They didn't believe the counterfeit. They submitted to the lamb. Friends, that's great encouragement for us this morning. That one day, the king will come back. The lamb who was slain will slay death. Because y'all, there's thousands of voices. Thousands of voices calling out for you to compromise here and now. They're calling out for you to shift your allegiance away from God. And all of those voices have behind them the dragon and the two beasts. They're always seeking to persuade you to ally with them rather than with God. So friends, don't listen to those voices of evil. God has shown you the face of evil, the tactics of evil, and he's showed you the, the final conquest of evil. Always stay vigilant to look for that face of evil. Wherever there's a call away from God, you can be certain that evil is manifesting itself and remain diligent to observe the tactics of evil. Stay sensitive to the broader political, religious, and economic landscapes of our country and our world. And ask the question, is it faithful to God? And when you find it hard to maintain faith, remember that the lamb who was slain will ride into battle and he will slay finally and completely death and all who follow it. Let's pray.
Almighty God, we do give you thanks that you will one day finally and fully conquer evil, that you will wipe away all the tears from our eyes, that there will be no sadness or sickness or sorrow. There will be nothing to compete for our affection or our allegiance. So we ask you, Lord, strengthen our hands for this cosmic conflict and come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray, amen.